Hey, this week we took a little bit of a break. Our family went out of town. <clears throat> we went to uh, Morganton and right above there, Lake James. We were hanging out and doing some things. But in order to get there, uh, we, we, we don't know the direction. So we had to use our phone, which a lot of us use for our direction, uh, our source of uh, direction. And I don't know. I mean, this is how it works for me. You put the address in the phone. It gives you a couple options. You choose the one you like the best. You know, whether you want interstates or side roads or whether you want to take an hour, an hour, 10 minutes, you pick it. It puts the information in there, and you just follow it. Very little do we second-guess it. We just go, well, it's got to know where it's going, right? Um, most of the time, that works. On Wednesday, we were in uh, Lake James, and we were leaving, and we were going to go into Morganton, and we needed to know where we were going, so I put the directions in, and Siri or Maps or whichever one, I don't know which one was using it, um, but she decided that we needed a tour of Burke County, um, and so she just kind of took us around this one point, turn right, turn right, turn right to get back to where we were going. You want to make sure when you're following somebody that they're going the right place. You want to make sure they've given you the right directions. And some of you give directions by miles. You say, go 2.2 miles, turn left, and you'll be there. Some of you give, go, when you see the sign on the left that says this, turn left and go up by the rock and turn right. Some of you give directions, but we all want, if we're following someone, we want to know they're going to the same place. They're going the same direction for the same purpose, for the same reason. This morning, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture that for many of us may be familiar. It's found in Luke chapter 19. We're going to get there in just a moment. We're going to give some background to it. But at at this moment in Jesus' ministry, the movement of Jesus has grown. The crowds have grown. But I'd like to submit to you this morning that there were some people following Jesus, and they weren't all following Jesus for the same reason. The crowds had grown, yes. Things were taking place, yes. And now they're entering into Jerusalem. We're going to read of them entering into Jerusalem. But we've got several groups of followers that are accompanying this group. We've got the miracle workers, or I call them the miracle junkies, right? They're waiting around for Jesus to do the next miracle. What's he going to do next? Who's he going to heal next? He's given sight to the blind. He's given hearing to the deaf. He's brought the dead back to life. What's he going to do next? We're just here to see what the next miracle is. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, he kind of calls them out and says, hey, I've got some teachings for you that are going to be difficult. And he proposes one of them to them. And all of a sudden, the group starts to dissipate. So you've got those that are following Jesus that are miracle junkies. They just want to see what miracle's next. Then you've got those who, are, who have gathered there together who believe that Jesus is going to be the next political Messiah. And this was popular because the Jewish people of which Jesus was one were searching and hoping and waiting for a political Messiah to come and overthrow, overthrow Rome because the Roman people and the Roman leadership had almost made them as they were slaves. They told them what to do, how to do it, how many taxes to pay, when to pay them, how to go about doing those things. And they were hoping and believing that Jesus was going to be the political Messiah that would overthrow Rome and put Jerusalem back under Jewish leadership. Then there were the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And they were following Jesus for a couple of reasons, but it really all boils down to one. Can we quiet this guy up? Can we entrap him? Can we seize him? Can we silence him so that this movement does not continue to grow? That's what we want to do. We'll follow along. We'll listen. We'll watch. And when we get the right moment, we're going to seize him. One passage reflects this. It says in John chapter 11, verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus. 
<laughs> and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might what? Arrest him. Their purpose is clear. They're moving along. They've got people that are following along this movement so they can let him know just the right moment that they can take hold of Jesus. And then you just got the crowd. Those are just onlookers. What's going on? Who is this Jesus? What is he about? And you also have his disciples, those that Jesus called and said, hey, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So you have all these dynamics, all these people that are, that are gathered, that as we come into Luke chapter 19, we get to see that in the middle of all this movement, I believe there's a moment for us to question, why do we follow Jesus? Are we a miracle junkie? Do we say, man, I'll follow Jesus as long as this happens in my life, but if it doesn't, I'm going to step aside? Are we, a, are we a Pharisee and saying, man, I'm skeptical of who Jesus is, and I'm just going to watch and wait for a follower of Jesus to stumble so that I can step away from Christianity for good? Are we somebody that's on looking, that's saying, hey, I, I, I want to see, if, is Jesus and this Jesus thing a political movement? We've got all these components now. So why do we follow Jesus? As we walk through this, I think you're going to see and hear that these folks were following Jesus for what he could do for them instead of who Jesus was. And so there's a great difference there in searching and in following. Are we going to follow Jesus for what he can do for us, what good he can deliver to us? Are we going to simply follow Jesus because of who he is? So Jesus has his disciples, they go before him. At this point, they're He's telling the disciples, up until this point, he's telling them, hey, let's keep this quiet. It's not my time yet to go into Judea. I'm not going to make that journey yet. He wasn't afraid of them, but he was not taking that opportunity yet. It wasn't his time. And so there was moments where Jesus had said to the crowd, hey, keep this quiet when there was a miracle. And there's moments when he said, hey, you can tell people. And now he's about to go into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as we've said before, is a holy city. It is the city for the Jewish people. It's their home. It's the center of their religious, their spiritual activity. And once a year, they would gather together for a time called Passover. And they would gather together and they would make sacrifices, something they had been doing for 2,000 years at this point. And they've been making these sacrifices in celebration for what took place in their history. And they would gather together. And many believe that at this point in history, that almost a million people, a million people were now in the city of Jerusalem. And they're there for all the different reasons. They're there to sell sacrifices. They're there to make sacrifices. They're there to celebrate. This is what they do once a year. They make this pilgrimage. They find themselves in Jerusalem. And Jesus is about to go into the city as well. He had told his disciples, he said, listen, guys, there's a cult that's been prepared for me that's waiting for me. Go and bring that cult. That's a, a, a donkey. Bring that cult, and I'll ride that into town. And so when we come to verse 35 of chapter 19, this is where they are. <clears throat> they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praised God with a loud voice, 
for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Let's get a little interactive this morning. I need your help, all right? Verse 38. Let's let's declare this together. Ready? One, two, three. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now remember, in that group, there were those who were saying, blessed is the King. They're not thinking a spiritual Messiah. Some of them are thinking, blessed is the King. Here comes King Jesus. We're a little confused. He should be on a nice chariot, not a donkey, but we're going to go with it. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes our political Messiah. Yes, there were those, the disciples saying, he's our Messiah. We've seen him do things. We've watched him perform things. And all these emotions are going into this moment. They're taking off their cloaks. They're throwing them down before Jesus and the donkey's walking over them. And they're going into town where a million people from all different regions. If they didn't know who Jesus was yet, they're soon going to know. Because here he comes. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Translation, Hey, boys, this is no longer private. Hey, guys, listen, disciples, don't be quiet. Don't worry. We're going into this full on. The party is about to take place, at least in their eyes. Here the movement is. It's moving into Jerusalem, moving in for Passover. Here comes Jesus. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the Messiah. And the priest and the chief priests are over on the sidelines going, hey, you need to keep your guys quiet. He says, no. I can quiet them, but if so, the stones are going to cry out. It can't be stopped at this point. This moment was providential, planned by God for this moment, for this purpose. The writer of John says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. In Matthew, Matthew writes, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Jesus of Nazareth. At one point, they're yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. For many in the crowd, they began to follow Jesus. They were anticipating Jesus for many different reasons. Here comes Jesus. I just picture in my mind all this taking place. One references palm branches are laid down before him, a sign of a political king coming, and they're laying down their cloaks He's coming in on a donkey. And they're thinking, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Jesus is no longer telling them to be quiet. He's announcing his arrival. He's entering into their city. But again, don't forget who's there. You've got the miracle workers. What's Jesus going to do when he goes in Jerusalem? What miracle is he going to perform next? you got the political Jesus. Here he comes. What a perfect timing to claim himself and put himself as king over Rome. The Pharisees. You need to be quiet. The crowd, we're just watching. And then in verse 41, we have a statement that's made only a few times in Scripture. 
It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, the past couple weeks, in my own time, I've been examining the moments in Scripture when Jesus weeps. I've yet to find a moment and a reference in Scripture where Jesus weeps without weeping as in mourning. Guys, this is not, you're watching a, you know, a movie that, you know, it's a chick flick and you're not supposed to be teary-eyed and you don't want anybody to know that you're teary-eyed and all of a sudden this one comes up on the outside and you're like, oh, no, I'm not crying, no, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. This is not, I'm gonna hide my tears moment. This is Jesus riding on a donkey. Everything seems to be going the way that all the followers are thinking it should. And he approaches and comes over the hillside and he sees the city and he begins to mourn. He begins to weep. Because Jesus knew what was going to take place. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. Jesus knew that over the horizon was not just a city. Over in front of him was a place of crucifixion. In front of him was a garden where he'd be betrayed by those he loves the most. He, he knew of all these things that were about to take place. And he wept. He was broken. I love how Warren Wearsby summarizes this moment of Jesus weeping. He says, no matter where Jesus looked, he found a reason to weep. If he looked back, he would see how a nation had wasted its opportunities and been, been ignorant of their time with him. If they looked within the people that were around, he would see spiritual ignorance and blindness in the hearts of the people. If he looked around, he would see in the city religious activity that was accomplishing very little. The temple had become a den of thieves, as he would later refer, and religious leaders were out to kill him. The city was filled with people there on a pilgrimage, but their hearts were heavy and broken with sin. If he looked ahead, he would see the city. And not only would he know that on the edge of that city he would be crucified, but he would also know that in 70 years... The Romans would overthrow this entire city, killing hundreds of thousands of people, taking the Jewish people into captivity, and he would weep. So everywhere he looks, in front of him, behind him, within the people, the religious people, in the city, he weeps. And here he is. The miracle workers thought, this is perfect. The political people, this is great. The Pharisees, not so much. You need to quiet the crowd. He knew that the crowd that was once full of chanting, Hosanna, would soon be those who would yell, crucify him. Rick Warren once said, crowds are fickle, never trust applause. It only took five days for Hosanna to become crucify him. They'd be swayed because their motives would have been what's in this for us, not who is he. Not what is he going to do for our salvation, but what is he going to do for our temporary? What's he going to do to fulfill our personal desires? They were fickle. They were fair-weathered fans, weren't they? Now, it's basketball season for some of us, for some of you. Not me, right? Your team's still standing, right? It's still basketball season. Some of us, you know what a fair-weather fan is, don't you? A fan is someone who, when your team is winning, you're loyal, but when they start losing, you switch teams. 
Do I have any Detroit Lions fans in the room? Any Detroit Lions fans in the room? Anybody? Raise your hand. Man, now I'm going to tell you what. He raised his hand. All right. That is a fan. Any Buffalo Bills fans in the room? Buffalo, four Super Bowls, no Super Bowl championship. Are you still a Bills fan? Yes. Any Cleveland Browns fans in the room? Got one. All right. There's, a, there's been a Cleveland Brown fan in every service, all right? That in itself is miraculous, all right? Because if you follow football, you know you're watching those three teams and you're going, oh, man, it's not happening again. And if you stick with them, you're not fair-weathered. You're there for the long haul. You should get an award after church, all right? Nobody in the crowd that's laying down palm branches is going to raise their hand and go, yeah, that's me. In five days, I'm going to betray him. In five days, I'm going to yell, crucify him. No. At this moment, at this point in time, they are all in. Or so they think. Because at this point, what would Jesus do for us? Would he perform more miracles? Would he be silenced? Would he be the political king? And all the while, Jesus wept. He knew the sinfulness of mankind. He knew the pain he was about to endure. Jesus wept. This was not a little tear. He's mourning the loss. Jesus knew that a handful of followers in a week's time, a handful of followers would be bound up in a living room waiting to see what happens next. Jesus knew that many of those that are walking down the road with him at this point would be swayed away from following him as soon as the miracle stopped. As soon as the teaching didn't feel good, they'd step away. Jesus knew that his purpose was death. Death upon a cross to offer salvation for mankind. He knew. He wept over a defiant, sinful, broken group of followers and the pain that he would endure when he went into the city. Yes, this is a triumphal entry as many would claim this to be. But it is not in the way, in the sense, that many of us have imagined it. So why were they following Jesus? Why do, why do we follow Jesus? Some would say, I'm following Jesus, one author says, because I want him to give me a godly marriage. That's a legitimate need that he can supply. But shouldn't your main reason be simply to follow Jesus? Some would say, I follow Jesus because I have some deep emotional hurts from my past and I want him to heal me. Again, he can and will do that, but it's not the main reason to follow him. The right reason to follow Jesus is because of who he is, God's anointed one, the rightful king over every heart and life. He died for your sins, arose from the grave, and is coming back in glory and power to reign over all. That's why we follow Jesus. Because there are going to be days where the miracles for us may not come the way we want. There's going to be days when skeptics ask us difficult questions about our faith. There's going to be days when we see a mockery made of Jesus and the followers of Jesus in policy and politics. Why do we follow Jesus? Who is Jesus? To be followed. 
I went back and looked at what Jesus said about himself. Well, we follow Jesus not because of what he can do for us, but for who he is. Who is Jesus? In John chapter 3, Jesus is a, is a prophet, is a teacher who's approached by a Pharisee, a religious leader, in the middle of the evening. He comes to him and says, I don't understand all that you're saying to me. I don't understand this new teaching that you're providing. I'm not sure what you're saying. And Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save, in order to come to the world in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is not speaking of someone else in this moment. He's speaking of himself to a guy named Nicodemus. And he's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, know that that's who I am. Know that I am your eternal life. Have you followed Jesus as your source of eternal life? Individually, not for someone else, not because of your family, have you trusted in Jesus as your source for eternal life? He says, I came to not to condemn the world. Convict? Yes. Who is Jesus? He promises eternal life. Who is Jesus? I love another story just a little bit further in Scripture. In John chapter 4, Jesus, he encounters a sinful, broken woman at the well and he speaks truth and life into her. She's in the middle of a, another relationship outside of her marriage and he meets her there at the well and he meets her with compassion, with conviction. And he says to her at one point, someone who is searching, someone who is looking, and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Referring to the well, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying to a broken, sinful person, I have come to give you eternal life and to put inside of you a spring of life that continues to just pour forth eternal life. Hope. He's speaking to someone that is so broken, that is so confused, that is so convicted. He says, listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to convict you, but I'm here to show you that I'm here to give you eternal life. Jesus made it clear to his disciples. He was the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus is the giver of grace. Jesus also said He's the one who delivers hope in the middle of despair. Jesus describes Himself at one point as the good shepherd who will care for those who come after Him. Paul describes Jesus. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Man, the last two weeks we've been singing several songs that just are covered with the word Jesus. And I love it because here it says in Philippians, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess and submission that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Didn't say in that passage, we'll, we'll bow our knee because he's the miracle worker and he gets us what we want when we want it. No, he says, because of who he is by authority and power. Not because he's a political hope, but we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is Jesus? Why do you follow him? As we enter into this really incredible week, 
There's so much history in this passage in, in Luke chapter 19. There, there's so much that could be said about this moment. But I want to ask you to ask of yourselves, why do I follow Jesus? Do I follow him when, when, when there's miracles and things are going well? Do I follow him when I'm on looking and it feels good? Or do I follow him for what Jesus has done in becoming a savior, a sacrifice for my sins? Because if we follow Jesus for that reason, then in the middle of our despair, he becomes hope. In the middleness of our broken, he brings peace. In the middle of our wandering, he gives direction because of what he's already done for us. Have you opened your heart, not to a distant political king or a miracle worker, but to a personal Savior who desires to know you, to guide you, to lead you? Let's pray this morning.